appreciate the worship in song and appreciate these people each and every week that come to lead us in worship. They are a blessing to this church. Um, take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 9. This summer, as we've moved through a, a short series here in June and July on the church, just different aspects that pertain to church, we're going to move uh, in the month of August through Labor Day weekend to our yearly or annually um, elder series. We'll be looking at Christ in the Psalms for five consecutive Sundays. Um, I know you'll enjoy that. We always look forward to the time when all of our elders have a time to preach. Of course, they do preach and teach throughout all the varied Bible classes that we have, but this is a unique opportunity that, that we love to do, and our church certainly uh, loves this as, as well. Um, this morning's topic on the church is going to have to do with evangelism or the, the witness of the church. I've been a Christian for 50 years or over 50 years now, and um, I have found probably the two greatest subjects that bring Christians guilt is evangelism and prayer. Um, that's not going to be our attempt today, is to bring anybody guilt. We certainly, though, um, think that the Holy Spirit provides a sense of an appropriate convictional guilt. Um, but we're going to look at some things this morning found in Matthew chapter 9 and 10 and look at the early church to try to note some things so as to, to spur us. Um, certainly, over the last six months, we've gone through um, a really beautiful phase where so many people have turned to Jesus by faith, and we have enjoyed seeing and hearing, specifically, Pastor Alex and I have heard their testimonies as, as they have come to Jesus. Um, that never gets old. We all sit here with some story or set of circumstances that brought each of us to the saving grace of Jesus. Um, that could have happened through family. It could have happened through friends. It could have happened through someone uh, just simply coming to church. And we know in Scripture it can happen um, by sheer mere acquaintances. God calls upon the church to evangelize the world. This is the last thing that Jesus does with his disciples as he spent 40 days on them. And he gives them, of course, what really is at the end of each of the gospel, the, the great commission. And the instruction, when you look at it, goes from what the world would perceive from the least to the greatest. I mean, God converts a Samaritan woman 
in John chapter 3, and she ends up going back and telling the whole village about Jesus who had converted her. And I think you could also use the, uh, the example of the Apostle Paul, who was probably uh, one of the most brilliant minds that the world has ever known, the chief of Pharisees, meaning his education, and, and of course, probably the greatest evangelist. But wherever level you find yourself this morning as a, as a Christian, as a part of our church, Christ Community Church, um, there is an aspect to evangelism that, that we want to stir. Um, I use this phrase because I think it's true. I, I think evangelism in one way is really caught more than it is taught. It's life experiences with people who are, what we're really called to do is to share our lives and the things that happen. So as we get into this, I want you to think of that for yourself. I want us to think of that collectively. And again, I say that not so much that we would move out of here in guilt, which can oftentimes happen, but that the Spirit himself would, would spur us. Um, to the world and the sphere of influence that God has left each of us in. So let's look at verse 35 through 38 of Matthew chapter 9. And the scripture says here, it says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's, let's bow our, our heads to pray. Father, we do come before you thanking you um, for the Lord's Day, thanking you that we can be here to worship you in, in this brief series. This morning we find ourselves in discussion and the talk, the preaching of the witness that the church is to evangelize. And so I pray, God, that you will continue to use um, Christ Community Church collectively as a body that we trust uh, will be faithful to you. And, and also, Lord, I pray you would spur each of us to stimulate our hearts unto love and good works that we would become the witnesses of the life death and resurrection of Jesus because we know that the gospel is the only hope in the world we live in. So use your word today and use the spirit we ask to build us in the faith. We pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Evangelism certainly is of the heart of God. God wrote us a book the Bible, the 66 books that make up the Bible, and the Bible itself is 
by nature a redemptive book. That's the purpose of Scripture, to teach us about Christ. And so the redemptive narrative really begins for us um, specifically in its need from Genesis chapter 3, and it takes us all the way through Je- uh, Revelation chapter 20. It talks about the Trinity in that the Father is electing, the Son is redeeming, and the Holy Spirit himself is regenerating. This is some of my own personal experience that much of evangelism has been um, in, in, in a lot of the messages I've heard throughout my life has been bent toward a type of guilt-ridden evangelism. And I would, I would say that that's had somewhat of a chokehold in my lifetime of the church. Guilt-driven evangelism tends to be superficial. It tends to be ungracious. And it tends to be unenjoyable. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. It's superficial in the sense if we're pressuring others to share Jesus and we don't pursue people out of care and love just to spout it out, that is a very superficial setting. I have certainly experienced in my lifetime, and I would say of my own life, that I have at times ungraciously shared Jesus. And thirdly, as I mentioned this, not only is, can this be guilt-ridden evangelism, be superficial and ungracious, um, we don't think of evangelism oftentimes as being enjoyable. And so when it's guilt-ridden, people do it in an enjoyable fashion. Now, let me just say this. Paul would tell the church at Philippi when he was when he was imprisoned, he gloried in even the legalist when they would proclaim the gospel. Okay, I want to be clear about that. And yet I don't think that evangelism has to be driven in that way. As a matter of fact, I don't think the early church evangelized uh, on that basis. Evangelism, when it really explodes, when you look at Acts chapter 2, was mostly led by ordinary believers when you're reading through the book of Acts. It was ordinary believers that begin to testify or witness to those who had visibly seen it that Jesus had rose from the dead. Jesus then would tell that group of individuals that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name, to all the nations. This is, of course, why we sat here. We are the product of that church's convictional call to heed. What a blessing. Evangelism. And we know in their setting that many of them were killed, right? For the sake of Jesus. Um, When you're looking at Acts chapter 2, once... um, The Spirit has come, right, ten days after the ascension of Jesus, the church then takes on witness. Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, and as you're you're moving through the book of Acts, 
There are really three areas to which the church brings witness. First of all, it took place in the temple on Solomon's porch. The apostles would preach from Solomon's porch in the temple. They then, like Jesus in this text, would move out into the regions and proclaim or evangelize in the synagogues. And then literally, from house to house, in a day-to-day way, the church testified of the good news of Jesus, specifically that Jesus of Nazareth had, had rose from the dead. I, I think they caught a glimpse of, of what C.S. Lewis tries to capture in this quote. It is because Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. And I don't think that's what the early church was thinking about. I think they were thinking about the other world. And let me, let me be clear about Acts chapter 2. I think it was a very unique happening that took place in redemptive history. But I want each of us to think about the historical setting and what took place in Acts chapter 2. Jesus, as we've already mentioned, he ascends. And as he ascends, and he's told them the Holy Spirit would come, he tells the church that they will be witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth. Ten days later, the church is still praying in anticipation that Jesus is going to come. Jesus then sends the Spirit And of course, in Acts chapter 2, it's like Peter does this biblical theology of Christ throughout the Old Testament. And and the Bible records for us that 3,000 souls were added to the church. So here's what we have. Jesus commissions, Pentecost takes place, and though 3,000 seem a lot, think of this. Because of Pentecost, if you read any Bible commentary or heard sermons on this, there were probably more than two million Jews that had assembled to Jerusalem. And in assembling to Jerusalem for the Pentecost, God brings a conversion. And through need, just from proselyte Jews and those that have gone about, people are caring for one another in homes. So there's a dynamic here that was truly unique in Christian history. This is why when you hear the church goes out house to house and in day to day, there was this, two things I think, thrill that Jesus of Nazareth uh, was alive, that he had been seen, and there was also, because of what Jesus said, I'm going to come again, They won't leave Jerusalem because they think Jesus is going to return. They had no reason to believe that that wouldn't take place. But I think we remember that in each of those settings that evangelism took place as the church gathered on Solomon's porch and then through just effective sharing of life in a house-to-house, day-to-day way. Now, As we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 9, 
I want us to, to look at just a few things together here that Jesus does where we can certainly emulate on our own part. Scripture once again tells us in verse 35 that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and, and every affliction. Evangelism was our Lord's priority. Jesus did not only come uh, to be the gospel, and that he was, he came to proclaim the gospel. Now when we think of the gospel, of course we think of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, what gospel of the kingdom was being preached. I want to be clear on this. There aren't multiple gospels. There is only one gospel. But what Jesus was spending his time doing was taking the Old Testament and pointing people that he was the promised Christ. But there was no anticipation on their part that Jesus would die. Right? We have the completed revelation, of course, of the New Testament, and we know what took place, that Jesus died for the penalty of sin, and that Jesus resurrected, and that Jesus ascended. All of those are, are literal events, but there was a certain type of human emotion to the early church and those who had connected their lives to Jesus that was overwhelming. They had spent X amount of time with him, and now that he is dead, now he is alive. And literally, as you're reading through Acts, they can't keep quiet about it. Even when their lives are threatened, and many of the, of course, we know the apostles would die, they, they would not deny that thing which they saw, this visibly glorified resurrected Lord, whom they then ascend into heaven. The text in Matthew's gospel tells us here that Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus, of course, is the head of the church. Jesus is the chief evangelist. Jesus is rich in grace. He is the one that led on mission to which we have been left with. We've been called by God to make disciples, and we make disciples through evangelism. Jesus leads our mission. Jesus, of course, is the head of the church, and he was the chief evangelism. Now, again, when you look at the text, the Bible tells us that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. Now, there were 200 of them. So Jesus would spend time going to the synagogue. He would preach and teach that he was the Christ. And then he would spend time as proof and care for others that he was this Messiah, this Christ, by healing people of every disease and every affliction. Of course, we see these examples throughout all the gospel. But we don't want to mistake in this. Jesus' chief priority was to preach and to evangelize. 
Matter of fact, in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus says at one point, as he was going out in this way, he says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. We don't always have this thought that Jesus' chief mission was to evangelize, but Jesus, in fact, was the great evangelist. He was the one that was pouring his life into cities, and once the gospel had saturated a place, he went to the next. He wasn't spending his time just doing good acts. Those good acts were for a purpose. Of course, to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, certainly to care for others, but his main priority, and we would never want to miss this, is that Jesus was evangelizing the world. Jesus, of course, is the true Israelite. Israel as a nation itself was called to do this. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6 tells us that God created Israel to be a light to the Gentile nations. Of course, they did not obey the covenant, but Jesus, of course, does. And here's what we want to think about his priority that I think is helpful for us. Because we can all get caught up in life with careers, making money, doing these types of things, which there's nothing wrong with that. But the priority of a believer's life, because this evangelistic message predominantly gets spread by ordinary believers, is that Jesus was single-minded in focus. Evangelism expresses godliness. Listen to the words that Jesus would say in his priestly prayer in John chapter 17. just want to read an excerpt from it. Jesus said this when he was praying, Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to, to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus would say this in verse 4, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, I hadn't died yet. He hadn't suffered on the cross yet. Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead yet, nor ascend to heaven, and yet, of course, we knew that would take place in firm conviction. Part of that accomplishing of the work is that Jesus came into the world as the true Israelite to evangelize those around him. That's the work that Jesus had, was to preach the gospel. Now, how did Jesus do this? I think this is pretty noteworthy because I think it works kind of hand-in-hand how the church did it. Jesus preached in the synagogues, and then when you're reading the gospel, he'll have small groups where he'll testify, and then we see him evangelize one-to-one. Those are the areas that become predominantly the places where Jesus reaches people. He preaches or evangelizes in the synagogues. He would teach in small group 
settings to which, of course, we know the disciples benefited greatly. And then he evangelized or testified of himself one-to-one. Well, why should we evangelize? Let me just give you this. Evangelism is the only thing, basically, in Christianity that we're not going to do in the next world. We're going to do everything else. We're going to hear from the greatest preacher ever. We're going to hear from Jesus. Jesus is going to teach on his own word. Every benefit that we have in this life will be really enjoyed in the next world. We have one shot of evangelization that happens in this life. It's not in the next life. So clearly we see that a priority of Jesus was to evangelize the world that he lived in. And I think this second one is very important in that it's tied to the first one. We see our Lord's motive. Look at verse 36. When he, this is Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Our Lord's motive is compassion. The text here tells us in Matthew 9, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. It's used also of Jesus in Mark chapter 7. The word compassion here in the Gospels is only used of Jesus. When we begin to examine our Lord's motive, Jesus was moved inwardly. Jesus was moved inwardly. He stirred a compassion that came from within. And then when he viewed the world, he saw it broken in sin. And as a result of its brokenness, he was moved with compassion. I think this is very interesting when you're reading this text. Jesus didn't view people as wicked sinners or those deserving judgment. But those things are true, aren't they? They're true of me. I'm a sinner, a wicked one at that, and I deserve God's wrath and judgment. And yet the text tells us when Jesus was viewing people, he viewed them as being harassed and helpless. They were going about like sheep, yet they did not have a shepherd. Jesus' heart and his motive is full of compassion. Jesus eyes the people and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. The word harass there means for those who are under duress. They are stressed out over their lives. Helpless means they're encumbered. They are those people who are burdened. Jesus sees people and he feels compassion because he knows that those who do not have him are burdened in their sin. Many times when they can't even identify what that is. 
people are burdened in their own sin, those are the people that are ripe for the gospel. Charles Spurgeon said this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. Church Christ has called us to emulate him. And I think that begins in large part with compassion. Jesus extends himself to others by preaching the gospel to them, proving his love and mercy and his compassion for people. And man, he lived in a dark world filled with hate. Can any of us identify with that? The polarization of societies and groups may be greater now than ever I've experienced in my lifetime. Yet are we moved with compassion for others. And we do so without compromising the gospel. Without compromising the gospel. Look, look ahead with me to, to chapter 10 as we move along with this. We want to see this first group that Jesus collects. Verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew in this text, he's Nathaniel in, in John's gospel. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. There are certainly, when we want to begin to look at people, obviously the target of the gospel is everybody, right? That's always some of the weird things that you, you see in gospel think tanks. Man, we're not just shooting for young people, though I'm, I'm thrilled when young people come to Jesus. We're not shooting for just, the gospel target is humanity, and we live in a world where people are burdened with their sin, even when they, sometimes they can't identify it's, the, itself to them. The gospel is the one that exposes that. But there are certainly fertile grounds that God uses with the gospel. I think that, that starts with family. Verse 2, right? You have Simon and Andrew, whom are brothers... You have James and John, who are brothers. There is Thomas and Matthew. In another gospel, he's called Thomas Didymus. There's many expositors that believe that Thomas and Matthew were twins. If that's true or not, I don't know, but I think it's pretty clear by the text that family is a fertile ground for the gospel. So we should have a burden for our family, for those who we love, because, you know, that's the, that's the immediate context that, that God has brought us to. I think, secondly, you see that happens with friends. This is the case of Philip 
and Bartholomew or Nathaniel in verse 3. Philip and Nathaniel were best friends. Now we won't go there for time's sake, but if you were to go to John chapter 1, verse 35 through 51, this is the, the first initiation. Andrew and John hang out with Jesus for a day. They come home and they tell their brothers, hey man, we found the Christ. I know the synagogue's dead, but no, we have found the Christ. Then they tell their brothers, and quickly thereafter, when you're looking at John's gospel, Philip gets converted only to tell his best friend Nathaniel about Jesus. And Jesus, of course, converts both of those. Why? It's, it's, I mean, it's not rocket science. It's, it's understandable that that's the fertile ground would be our family. And then those who are our immediate friends, those who we're close to. But I don't want you to miss this, because that's not the only thing. In this uniqueness of this particular group, look again at verse 3, and you see the last two. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. James and Thaddeus. The only thing in Scripture that is said about those two is said in lists. That's it. Nothing else in set is said of those two in the Bible. Now what that does for me is that God cares for even the least. There was nothing significant about James' life or Thaddeus' life. They were pretty ordinary people. And yet the gospel is also extended to what the society would say is the least of people. And yet I don't think that it stops there. Even within this text, the Bible tells us that he converted Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Who would those people be? Well, they would be the most hated people. To be a tax collector for the Roman Empire, Matthew was taxing his own kindred. He was hated beyond measure. Jews hated tax collectors, period, for the Roman Empire, much less tax collectors who were of their own ethnicity. And yet, when, when God, when Jesus converts him, Matthew goes home, and when you look at my, uh, Luke's Gospel in chapter 5, Verse 27 through 32, he throws a huge party with a bunch of other tax collectors and chief sinners, right? They just want to, he just wants them to be exposed to Jesus as Jesus converted Matthew. Well, that's one that would be hated, but think of this guy, Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a militia group. They wanted to kill the Romans by force. Herbert Lockyer calls Simon the Zealot the apostle who was, the, who was a man of hate who turns to an apostle of love. He goes from wanting to murder everyone around him to those as Simon the Zealot to preach the gospel of love and mercy to others. There is a uniqueness to this first group 
that simply tells us that the target of our evangelism is anybody who is breathing. We want to preach the gospel to anybody who is breathing. I think it's also a good reminder for this, church. There's no one in your life that's too far gone from God's gracious arm. No one. The opportunity to hear the gospel happens in this life and happens in this life only. But you have no one in your life that's too far gone from the grace of God. The gospel is this, that Christ Jesus saves sinners. It's everything that the Bible expresses. That God created the world and he made humanity in his image to love and to worship God. That God is holy and pure and perfect and that he created all things for good. There is absolutely no sin in God and neither does he tempt any of us with sin. That man originally was created good. He fell in sin Adam willfully disobeyed God. He rebelled against his creator, and now we, like Adam and everyone else, were broken in our own sin. People need to be made right with God because our sin will ultimately separate us from the grace of God. God's solving of this sin problem is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the God-man. Christ alone can make you right with God. Jesus is the only bridge to God. It's salvation alone comes by his life, death, and resurrection. Those are really simple things to understand, really. I had two grand parents that had basically a first grade and third grade education and yet they understood the gospel and they understood their need for Jesus and this is how they responded which is the response for all of the church that have taken Jesus by faith they acknowledge their sinfulness they repent of their sin and by faith they take Jesus and that faith is found in three components Knowledge, assent, and trust. The knowledge of the gospel I've just basically gone through. That God is holy, that you are sinful, and that Christ alone can save you. You must have that knowledge. And the gospel is made out in words. They are necessary for someone to become a Christian. That knowledge then in your mind you must assent that all of what the scripture says is true. And yet still that is not enough until you trust in Jesus alone to save you. Zach read from the scripture this morning in Isaiah chapter 55 that says this church. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he may be near. 
The Old Testament says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Moses looks out before a crowd when he preaches and he says, choose life over death. Elijah, in speaking uh, to uh, a group of people, says this, how long will you linger between two opinions? If God be God, serve him. If Baal be God, serve him. No one is promised tomorrow. For those of you who have yet to take Jesus by faith, we implore you by the mercy of God to trust in Christ to save you. The last aspect of this is found in verse 36 and 37 or 37. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord for the harvest and to send out laborers in the harvest. Here's God's plan. Here's the Lord's plan for us to pray. I know I've become guilty of this way too often where you're caught up in trying to have the answer or explanation. Jesus says to pray. And there are two things that he features here of this age. Number one, the harvest is plentiful. There is a harvest because God is still saving. We've witnessed it here recently. The harvest yet is plentiful. And yet the laborers are few because many Christians become dull in their thinking. And we lack compassion towards others that don't have Jesus. His plan was to pray. Pray earnestly. Pray that God in his divine providence would bring appointments to you where you could testify of Jesus. The harvest, of course, is those whom God is going to save. We go with that assurance, and by the message of the gospel, the laborers are the church. We're to pray for laborers, and we're to pray to reach the harvest. This is Jesus' plan, Matthew chapter 28. Pray for the harvest, then go and pray for laborers. And this is Christ's plan, and he doesn't have another one. Let's pray. Father, as we, we consider evangelism, Lord, for each of us, someone along the way begin to testify to us of the gospel. It could have been our own family members. It could have been friends. Perhaps it came from a stranger. Perhaps, Lord, it even came from some before faith. It would have been a person we would have deemed we hated. I, I pray for us as a people that you will move in, in our hearts for Christ Community Church. That we would emulate our Savior with compassion toward others that we would see them like we are wicked sinners that deserve judgment, but that we would appropriately, spirit-led 
possess a burden for them because they're burdened and trapped in their own sin. Move us, God. Move us that we would awaken to take the gospel of Jesus to the world we live in. We pray for this and we ask for this in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.